0: Well, good morning. It's good to have you guys here this morning. The church gathered in this building. Uh, Before I start the message, a couple of things I want to remind you of, if I could. Um, Last week, we had a group come up that were um, going to Ethiopia. They left at, oh, dark 30 this morning. And about 2 o'clock, they're going to be flying out of Seattle for uh, for Addis. Uh, There's, in your communicator, there is a, uh, this thing here. It's got the names of the people who are traveling, Kim and Jay Williams, Sarah Sparks, uh, John Underwood, and uh, Eric Johns, senior pastor. Um, And there are some specific things to be praying for. Uh, And if you could just put this on your refrigerator if you can or put it someplace where you're going to remember it and so that you can pray for them. There are some fairly weighty um, issues that they're going to be dealing with in at the Mechanisa Addis Kadon Baptist Church. Uh, specifically, two days, if you could uh, just think to pray. Um, there's a 12-hour time difference. I know God out, stands outside of time and that whole that deal, so I don't know if it really matters if you pray while they're meeting. But at 5 o'clock on Wednesday morning, our time, they're going to be meeting with the elders of the, the church there. If uh, you get up early or the Lord prompts you, if you're like me, I'm usually up around 4.30 I don't get up, but I'm awake. Um, but I spend that time in prayer. If you if you're up around five, you could pray on Wednesday and on Friday as well. That would be. I think it's Friday. Uh, yep. Uh, Wednesday, and actually Wednesday and Saturday. Um, so if you could just remember to do that, just that God's will would be done and that uh, wisdom and uh, discernment just be all around. So, and the other thing is, on the side of your communicator is a zip strip. Uh, that would be great if you could fill it out sometime as the, as the message is uh, transpiring here. So anyway, I'm Keith Payne. If you don't know me, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and I get the privilege of preaching this morning while Eric is on his way to uh, Ethiopia. So, uh, I'd like to start by reading out of the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful this morning, Bethel Church gathered in this place, that we have the confidence to enter into the most holy place, which is symbolic of your presence. And we don't come on our own merit, but upon the merit of Christ through the the veil that separated us from your presence was torn when Christ presented his sacrifice himself before you. So we come near with boldness and confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but with the full assurance of trust in you and the trustworthiness of your word, we come into your presence. Thank you for loving us with such a deep and profound love. May we love you in return. In Christ's name, amen. For us to become part of the family of God is not a matter of performance. It is not that we somehow clean ourselves up, get our act together, and make ourselves worthy. For make no mistake about it, no matter how much we scrub or how much we straighten up, We are never in the position where we tell God, boy, are you lucky to get us. There is no way that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and gain entrance into God's family. There are no boots and there are no straps. If we are to become part of God's family, God has to take the initiative. And the good news is, is that he has. The good news is is that our failure and the subsequent consequences of our failure, which is the wrath of God, God's holy and just anger poured out upon those that rebel against his rule. That has fallen upon Jesus. He suffered the punishment for my sin. He suffered the punishment for your sin. But the good news doesn't stop there. Because in addition to the punishment that I deserve falling upon Christ. The righteousness that he possesses intrinsically as the Son of God has been given to me. Jesus' obedience, which was perfect, has been credited to my account. And the means by which we access this divine exchange, this exchange for punishment and righteousness, is by placing our trust in and what Christ has done. Trusting in the good news, in the person and the work of Christ. God gave his son, who lived a perfect life, who offered himself on the cross for us, and we place our trust in what God has done. The scripture tells us that what motivated God to do this was his great love for us. A love that is wide and long and high and deep. A love that is almost beyond understanding. This love displayed in God's incredible grace. His unmerited favor directed towards us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. The Apostle Paul doesn't say it's by hard work and, and perseverance that you have been saved. It is by being perfect that you have been saved. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith, placing our trust in Christ. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And this really should elicit a hearty amen from all of us. Praise the Lord that my adoption into God's family was not dependent upon me. Praise the Lord that your adoption into God's family was not dependent upon you. So, if you sit in this place this morning and you're trying really, 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 really hard, if you are trying really, really, really hard to get God to love you, to have you invited into his family, let me tell you this give up. I don't care how really, really, really hard you try, it's an impossible task. Trust in Christ. That is the means by which we access everything that God has for us as his sons and his daughters. Adoption to, into his family by trusting in his son. And I believe, I mean, really sort of fundamentally, that we would all acknowledge that for entrance into God's family would re- requires God's grace, that we can't do it ourselves. But I'm not convinced that we recognize the continual need of God's grace as we live as God's children. That we need it not just daily, not just weekly, that we need it hourly. I'm not convinced that we really believe it. Remember, we are called to a life of obedience. We are to do what the scripture tells us to do. We are called to a life that, that expresses love for God. We are called to love one another, probably one of the most difficult things that we are called to. We are called to a life of service and sacrifice. We are called to be united, having one purpose and direction. Not that we all walk in lockstep with one another or that we're all cookie cutters of one another, but that we are united in purpose for the glory of God's kingdom. And we are called to evangelize, to share the good news with the world. And this life is only remotely possible as the grace of God continues to work within us this very day, this very hour. In his grace, God provides for the continued work on our behalf of the heavenly ministry of Christ, who is our high priest. And what's really sort of generating this, um, I've I've been thinking for a long time, when I leave here on Sunday morning, have I truly worshiped? And understand it is a, um, we are pretty strong on the fact, or we believe strongly, that worship is more than just singing. That every aspect of what we do here on a Sunday morning, when we sing together, that's an act of worship. When we uh, sit under the instruction of the word, when we allow the word to take root in our heart, that's an act of worship. When we fellowship with one another, you know, when we share our lives with one another, that's an act of worship. When we give that's an act of worship as well but but I'll, I mean I want to focus just a little bit because this is what I do is on the musical portion of our, our worship and I'll tell you I'm up here on a Sunday morning and I, I really want my heart to engage in worship as we sing but there is so much going on in my head that it's incredibly difficult am I playing the right chords am I singing the right words? Am I in tune with the people over here? Or is the groove set that we're all sorted together? Is it too loud? Oh, no, there's people coming in here and they don't have a place to sit. Why can't people just sit towards the middle? That would be really good. I mean, <laughs> it's getting hot in here. No, I can't tell the people to move together because I'm not going to interrupt what we're doing. All the stuff's going on in my head. So I, I leave here at times going, have I truly worshiped? And I've been reading a book. It's called Worship, The Worship Architect. It's by a woman by the name of Constance Cherry. She is one of the most uh, insightful and profound readers that I've read in quite a while. And she has, as I've been reading through this book, there was a small paragraph that says, our worship is going to always be imperfect. What we do here, what I do here is always going to be imperfect. But take, take heart. Christ takes our worship and presents it to the Father and makes it right. Right. And I was just, I was just, man, I was, uh, I mean, my heart saying that, yeah, I don't have to come here and my worship doesn't have to be perfect for it to be acceptable because Christ, as our high priest, takes what we offer and presents it to the Father and makes it acceptable. So when I leave here now, have I truly worshipped? Sometimes I go, well, I tried. But I know that what's presented on my behalf to the Father by Christ, our high priest, is acceptable. We don't have priests in the, as Protestants. Now, one of the foundations of the Reformation was the priesthood of every believer, that we all have direct access. There doesn't have to be a mediator between us and God. So when we talk about priests, we basically have to look at the Old Testament because that's the foundation of the high priesthood of Christ. And that when, when God instituted the nation... After he had delivered them from Egypt and brought them into the desert as they were going to the uh, to the promised land, he appointed a tribe, the tribe of Levi, to be priests, and within that tribe, the uh, the clan or the family of Aaron were to be. Um, also to be, engage in religious service, uh, those who were not the descendants of Aaron were assigned tasks sort according to their family. Some carried the items that were used within the tabernacle or within the, within the tabernacle, the the ark of the covenant, the um, the uh, the lamp post, and those kinds of things. Other members of the uh, the tribe of Levi were assigned to carry the curtain, which sort of de- uh, delineated what the uh, the tabernacle, what, where the tabernacle were, was. And others carried the structural elements, the posts, the, the pegs, the ropes, the cross posts and stuff. Um, but Aaron's family, they, his descendants would be the group that would offer sacrifices and make atonement according to the law. So the people would bring their sacrifices, bring their offerings to the priest, and they would present it before the Lord. And then the priest would also take the sacrifices of atonement, which were the result of sin, and present it before the Lord, where the the life of the animal was exchanged for the life of the guilty. All of these were offered by the priest. And then during the the reign of David, which is about... hmm, probably 1,400 years after the book of Leviticus, was, no, 1,200 years after the book of Leviticus was written, uh, David instructed that there was a certain group within the, uh, the nation of the Levites or the tribe of the Levites to, uh, to be musicians. And they were appointed to make a joyful noise with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So God instituted the priesthood to represent humankind before God. The priests were the mediators between God and man. They were to offer the gifts that the people brought, and they were to offer the sacrifices as well. So if you were a, uh, a worshiper within the nation of Israel, and you came to the temple, there were part, if you were bringing a sacrifice of atonement, you would bring your animal, you would lay your hands upon it, you would confess your sin, and then you would take its life you would take its life to remind you of the horrible consequences of sin. And from that point in time the priest would actually take part in the ritual and do whatever if it was a, a sin offering it was this kind of offering different uh, different parts or different rituals were required. But it was the priest who was the mediator between the the offerer and God. The priest offered to God on behalf of sinful man that which could affect reconciliation. So in the Old Testament times, a worshiper couldn't come into the temple and just go into the holy place or into the most holy place. They were, um, the regulation, the, uh, the, the rules of the temple would not allow that. And if they tried to do it, the consequences could be quite dire. It was the priest who, who was the intermediary, intermediary. The priest was the mediator between what the man had done or the woman had the worshiper had done, and, and God. Remember at the beginning, I read out of Hebrews 10, where it says, we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. This was totally unheard of, unthinkable, unimaginable for a worshiper in the nation of Israel before Christ coming to enter into God's presence. He knew if that happened, he was likely to be struck dead. And barring that, he was likely to be executed by the nation themselves. What a privilege we have because of what Jesus has done. We can come boldly with confidence because of our faith in Christ into God's very presence. What a privilege we have as God's people. And then once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. Once a year. Once a year, one man had the confidence, not, didn't have the confidence, had the responsibility to enter into the very presence of God. Leviticus 16 records the instructions for the Day of Atonement. The only day of the year where the only the high priest could enter into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The Ark where the glory of God rested. Where God's manifested presence was displayed. And if he, of all the people within the nation, could come into God's presence. What a contrast. The writer of Hebrews says, Come boldly with confidence into his presence. And it really must, in the time before Christ, for the high priest to enter into that sacred and holy place must have been an awe-inspiring experience. Awesome in the fullest sense of the word. But it was also a place of danger. Leviticus 16 tells us he had to be dressed in a specific manner. Before he could enter into the holy place, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and had to offer a sacrifice for his family. When he entered the Holy of Holies, there were bells on the hem of his robe, and there was a rope tied around his feet. And as he entered the the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the nation, there were those who were outside listening to make sure the bells kept making a sound. Because if they didn't, then the rope came into play. Because they would drag him out because God had struck him dead. If he entered into God's presence incorrectly or irreverently or presumptively, it could result in his death. And then there was a search for a new high priest. Someone to take his place. And I would imagine at that particular juncture that the pool was shrinking by the minute. One man... Once a year, fulfilling the, the, the ritual obligations to enter into God's presence. God tells us to boldly come with confidence before him. What a privilege. And the high priest, the priesthood and the high priest were living examples of the high priest that was to come. Jesus As the book of Hebrew teaches, there are significant differences between the examples in the Old Testament and Jesus. Pastor Eric, a number of years ago, took us through the the book of Hebrews, and he did a great job. Uh, I don't know if they're still online, but they're certainly still worth listening to. But I've just been struck the last couple of weeks as I've read through Hebrews of God's amazing provision for us and his deep and profound love. And that love's preeminently expressed in Jesus as our high priest. But there were differences. The first is, the, and these are contained in your notes, is the ancestry. Uh, to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to trace your lineage back to Aaron. You had to have a, um, a pedigree that w- went back that far. Um, but Jesus was declared a high priest by virtue of his divine nature. It says in Hebrews 7, Jesus is the one who became a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Because of who Jesus is, because Jesus is the divine Son of God, the eternal God, the Son, he can be our high priest. Make no mistake about it. Jesus claimed to be God time and time again. The most clear, the clearest example I have found is in Mark 4, where Jesus is teaching. There's some guys that are trying to bring their friend who is paralyzed, can't get to the front to bring him to Jesus to be healed, so they, lo- they lower him through the roof. And when Jesus sees the faith of his friends, Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. And there was this collective gasp through the crowd because the crowd was made up mainly of teachers of the law. And they said, Who in the world can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus Jesus heard them. He goes, Yep, I know that. And what you're saying is true. He says, To show that I have the authority to forgive sin, to show you that I am truly God come in the flesh, he healed the man. And he took up his pallet and he walked. Jesus is truly God come in the flesh. And by virtue of his divine nature, he was declared to be a high priest. Another element where the, the, there's a distinction made is that the terms of the high priest in the Old Testament, or the priest and high priest, were limited. Uh, once you hit 50, uh, you could no longer serve as a priest. And even if there wasn't a mandatory retirement age of 50, uh, eventually you were going to die, so your priestly uh, service would end. But Jesus' priesthood is permanent. There's no retirement, mandatory or otherwise. In Hebrews 7.23, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, because of the permanent priesthood of Christ, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is continually, perpetually, eternally before the Father making intercession for us. And because of that, we are saved completely. Salvation, we, all, we, we tend to think of salvation as a one-time, one-moment event. But as we look at the scriptures, it really talks about salvation in three terms. Number one, we have been saved. Number two, we are being saved. Number three, we will be saved. We have been saved from the consequences of sin. Christ took those consequences. I no longer suffer the wrath of God. You no longer suffer the punishment, the just punishment for your sin. We have been saved. We are in the pre- we are presently being saved as we are being separated from the power of sin within our life. We are becoming, as God works within us, increasingly set apart for God. And one day we will, we will be saved from the presence and the power of sin. Christ, because of his high priestly role, continually making an intercession before the Father for us, is able to save us completely and utterly because he is an eternal high priest. In the Old Testament, the priest had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could present represent the people before God. They were required to live lives of dedication and holiness, and they often failed. So they had to make sacrifices for their own shortcomings. But Christ's life was one of sinless perfection. They were sinful. Christ is perfect. Again in Hebrews 7, Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And like the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. And I don't know if you can imagine um, what the temple life was like. I mean, the tabernacle was constructed around 1200 BC and existed to probably around 1000 BC. And then the temple was constructed under the time of Solomon. But I don't know if you can imagine what it was like there. I mean, we live in Alaska, we kill animals. If you've ever slaughtered a moose, butchered a moose or butchered a caribou, um, it's a messy business. It really is. It's messy, it smells, it's hard work. And if you can imagine time and time and time again the sacrifices brought into the temple if you can imagine time and time again sacrifices slaughtered how the people must it must have been uh, made so clear to them the heinous nature of sin and the consequences of it the, priest, the work of the priests was literally never done. As people lived, as the priests lived life, they were constantly falling short of the glory of God. And since the, the sacrifice of animals could never permanently cleanse our failure, they were constantly repeated. Constantly repeated, day and night, time after time. Animals slaughtered, blood shed, blood splashed on altars, animals consumed. It was a dirty business because of the heinous nature of rebellion against God. But Christ, as our high priest, offered himself as the final sacrifice once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, speaking of Christ, has offered for all time one sacrifice of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because of God. Because of Christ's divine nature, one sacrifice was all it took. A sacrifice of tremendous worth and value to satisfy the consequences of sin repeated time and time again. And Jesus is a high priest that serves within not an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, but Jesus offered his service within one that was infinitely better, the one that was in heaven. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. When a priest, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies during, uh, before Christ came, they went in and there was a representation of the glory of God, the cloud over the Ark of the Covenant. Christ is in the, the, the real presence of the Father as he offers the sacrifice now. Christ as our high priest is infinitely superior to the high priest and the priests that served during the Old Testament times. And finally, he is a high priest which can relate to us, which is an amazing statement. I don't know if there is a situation that Jesus is not acquainted with. He was the oddball kid that surprised the rabbis in the temple. He worked a blue-collar job as a carpenter. He was rejected by his family, his people, and his friends. He knew what it was like to be homeless, hungry, and thirsty, misunderstood, and mocked. And ultimately, he was killed, although he was innocent of any crime. Jesus identifies with our humanity. Jesus is not a God that is far off, that has absolutely no idea what you and I encounter on a daily basis. Jesus encountered it all. It says this in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Understand that there is a distinction between temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways, it says, just as we are. But he chose not to succumb to that temptation. The greatest or one of the better illustrations that I appreciated between the distinction between temptation and sin is actually given by Martin Luther, where he says the temptation is like a bird flying over your head. None of us can stop a bird from flying over our head. But all of us can stop a bird from making a nest in our hair. Temptation is that bird flying over. Sin is where we allow it to take up residence within us. Jesus was tempted just like we are. But he never let that bird make a nest in its hair, and we frequently do. I think of Jesus, after he had fasted for 40 days, Satan came and tempted him and said, if you're truly the son of God, make these stones into bread. Jesus was hungry. He had just fasted for 40 days. He wanted to eat. He was tempted. That bird flew over his head. But he chose not to succumb to the temptation and rebuke Satan by the word of God. Jesus has been tempted in all ways, just as we have. And because of that, because of Jesus as our high priest, he knows what we go through. And as our high priest, Jesus intercedes for us. He advocates for us. Make no mistake about it. There is an enemy of our souls that wants nothing more to turn us away from God. He stands in opposition to everything that is holy and godly. Listen to this. This is out of the book of Revelation, and it's speaking of the devil. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him, and then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And here's the salient point for the accusers of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God has been hurled down. From my understanding of what this passage says, Satan's primary goal, his primary activity is standing before God and declaring and accusing us of all types of things. His primary objective is to point out to, to God that point out that God's people, me and you, are not perfect. And this is in spite of the fact that we have born, been born again, that we, we have been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and made new creatures in Christ. But there is not a day or an hour where we achieve perfection. There is much for which we can be accused. And sometimes we're totally aware of what we have done, and oftentimes we just gloss over it and say it's no big deal. So sadly, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the, bro, of the brothers and sisters in Christ, who continually accuse us before God. His accusations are true. But Jesus, as our high priest, advocates, intercedes on our behalf. He is our defending attorney who answers and defeats the accusations of our enemy. He defeats the accusations, not be, not, he doesn't say they're not true, but he defeats the accusations based upon his life and sacrifice in which we have placed our trust. We have been pardoned of those accusations that Satan hurls against us. Hebrews 7 says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He intercedes on our behalf. He pleads and points to his sacrifice that has been imputed to our account. He doesn't say the accusations have been true, but the the accusations have been dealt with in his death. 1 John says this, My dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Christ is our high priest, continues to intercede for us. And finally in Romans, Who will bring a charge against those who God has chosen? Is it not God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? Not accuses. Because Satan accuses, but God does not condemn no one. Who is it that condemns no one? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christ, as our high priest intercedes, he constantly represents us before the Father. In light of the accusations, because of his perfect sacrifice, he declares that the penalty has been paid. And Christ also prepares a place for us as the high priest. John 14 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled, speaking his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I asked someone, "Have uh, you know what do you think Jesus was referring to?" And, and they said, "Well, he was a carpenter, but I somehow don't think he's been doing has been framing uh, rooms for the past two thousand years." There is a Jewish tradition that when a man and a woman were betrothed, for that next year uh, the man worked to uh, prepare a, uh, a place for them to dwell, usually attached to their family's um, home, and John the writer of the gospel also wrote extensively about the wedding feast of the lamb so it's possible that he was ref- making reference to that tradition but ultimately i think what jesus is telling us that it, that there is room in god's presence for everyone who believes in him there is not there is no danger that god's not that god is going to run out of room god doesn't have a three bedroom ranch on 3 acres he has a trillion-bedroom ranch on unlimited anchors, acreage. And there is going to be room for us. He's going, to, he's going as the forerunner and by his sacrifice prepare a place for us. His offering in the heavenly tabernacle allows us to enter into God's dwelling. And finally, he promises to return to get us. As high, as, the high, as our high priest, Jesus is making us possible for heaven and, po- and heaven possible for us. He's making coming into God's presence possible. And the rooms are ready and waiting. And finally, and this is one that gladdens my heart, Jesus sings with us. So in answer to sort of my question, have I worshiped? There is an element where God takes what we do here on a Sunday morning, where Jesus takes what we do here on a Sunday morning, and he sings with us, and he makes it acceptable before God. So as I'm singing here, and my mind is filled with all the stuff that accompanies being up here, I know that Jesus is singing along with me and making my song acceptable. It says in Romans, or... uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 11, which is a recitation or uh, it's cited out of Psalm 22, which is probably one of the most messianic Psalms in the Psalms. Uh, it speaks of Christ's uh, crucifixion and his death. But it says, Both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters and in the sim in in the assembly i will sing your praises so jesus sings with us as we sing this morning jesus as our high priest intercedes for us he is our advocate before the one that would accuse us of wrongdoing and he has gone to prepare a place for us i would just urge you to read through the book of Hebrews again, and be overwhelmed, to be awestruck by the ministry of Christ for us here and now. It is impossible for us to live the life that God calls us to without His work within our lives. And finally, I want to uh, to read a pa- or read a quote out of a book. And unfortunately, I I, I did the. Um, um, what is it that I did, Keith? Uh, Typo, thank you. Uh, It's worship, community, and the triune God of grace, not grave. Um, So, yeah, Uh, the C and the V, I think, are real close. But it says this, Jesus comes to be the high priest to do for us, men and women, what we fail to do. To offer to the Father the worship and the praise that we fail to offer. To glorify God by a perfect life, of love, a life of perfect love and obedience to be the one true servant of God. He comes to stand in for us in the presence of the Father. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the high priest that is eternal, who once and for all provided the sacrifice for us. Jesus, thank you that you are our advocate and continue to intercede on our behalf. That you plead your blood and your sacrifice. Thank you for the place that you have prepared for us and that the room is limitless and that we can all be together. And thank you that even as we sing this next song, you sing with us. That you lift a voice of perfect perfect perfection, perfect harmony and melody all in one and offer what we offer to the Father. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your great love for us. May we be continually overwhelmed by who you are and what you have done. And we pray in your name, amen.